um, before I start, it's, it, you know, I was thinking about worship in this community, and I think I just want to note Simon's value um, in our evening gatherings this year. Um, I know for me, it's it's quite a nostalgic moment, we did this for a very long time ago, um, and it's nice to do it again, so I just wanted to appreciate that. Alright. It was after work. Um, it was It was overcast. It was, I imagine what it's looking like out there in like half an hour's time, it was slightly gloomy, and there's trickle of warm fluorescent lights that guide the thousands of pedestrians after work. I was one of them, and I was walking from work to my, for the gym, which at the time and still is, is my after work place. It takes about half an hour to get across town, and it involves crossing Manor Street into this triangular Tiaro Park. That's when we've always visualised that one. Now, before I jaywalked across that bus lane, it wasn't memorable, just another standard walk. What came about in the next couple of minutes would have been something. See, see, this tree, the park is a big tree, and there were a few teenagers there. A few guys and girls, the guys were in hoodies, the girls were in clubbing attire, it, was, it should have been Friday night attire, but it was a Monday night. <laughs> And I could see one of the girls asking various passers-by for some money. And I knew what was coming. I had my headphones on, I don't quite hear this, this joke, but she came up and asked, and I declined, you know, as you do, and just thought I could walk along the way. The only problem is that two guys sitting at that tree literally flew my way and tried to confront me and said, you know, give the girl some cash. Whoa, okay, that was a bit unexpected. I declined again. Now, the fat footpath I was walking on, maybe a metre wide or so. And I kind of, they were on my left, I kind of walked to my right. The only problem is they followed me in their left. They try and block me from getting any further. And one of the guys has the moxie to get face-to-face in close quarters and turn his confrontation into a threat. Whoa, what is, hap- what is happening here? Adrenaline starts pumping. Blood starts rushing to the head. I had instinct for one thing and one thing only, and that was to punch him. So I shoved him in the chest. Um, felt good in that split second, and then the next split second, I'm on the ground. I was, that shove led to a return shove, and thankfully there was a little bit of grass on that path that I fell into, but it was, I'm on the ground, I'm reflecting what the heck just happened. See, I wasn't angry when I crossed the road, nothing was really happening. When I got asked for money, okay, it happens, you, you decline and move on. When I was confronted on my left and asked to get some cash, okay, a bit uncomfortable, but sure. But the second the guy came into my face, I was this thunderstruck, this lightning bolt of anger, violence, trying to hit this guy, I don't know who he is. That's what I wanted to do. Anger hits like that. Anger and revenge and rage just hits like a lightning bolt. And I think we've all felt that specific emotional reaction at some point come up in merely split seconds and that's what I get to talk about tonight. Now before I get into the how and the why and the where and all those other questions, I probably need to start with what and define this thing of anger. So I went to what everyone has done this series and gone to the dictionary online. I went to Merriam-Webster and they said to me, okay, you know, anger is a strong feeling of displeasure, usually of antagonism. Okay, we'll go with that. 
I went to Wikipedia thinking, okay, I'll get my one sentence answer. I basically got given the finger. As paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of psychological analysis came out. I don't want that. I just want a one word definition. No. Okay. Now, Kiri two weeks ago asked me for a definition when she was preparing her talk on resentment, and so I somehow came up with one more egg and pumpkin pie. Um, these two parts I have words. So I said that it is a visceral reaction. We'll get to this shortly. Two. An unmet expectation. And I thought being in red, it'll be it'll make more sense. <laughs> now, why do I use these two parts? So visceral. Why use the word visceral? I wanted a word that could describe that intensively emotional reaction you have to something. That you can't put into words very easily, and that was the word that came up, you know? Little things. Like like things like losing your keys. Or someone losing the keys for you. Or perhaps pulling the toilet bowl toilet roll the way around. Is that right? Is that wrong? I don't know, but maybe it causes a conflict, right? Like it causes something to some people. Or at its most extreme, saying we're happy with this, is a kick to the inappropriate region. <laughs> <laughs> we all know what happened. People know what happened before this happened. This physical, intrinsic reaction to something. The second part. The unmet expectation, and I put that in there because I don't believe that anger just comes from nothing. It starts with something. It starts with a moment and an experience where our physical, our emotional, what social needs, whatever needs they are, are just not met. And, and on that night, I get shoved over. I had a few expectations to walk freely, first of all, to be able to decline a request, and thirdly, to be able to walk away when I felt threatened. Now, here's the thing with these expectations here, these, sorry, definitions here. I don't want to write a definition that said anger is inherently good or is inherently bad because, you know, anger can be the catalyst to pursue peace. It can be the starting point to create change, to advocate for a cause. Or, in that night, it was a chance to be aggressive, a chance to take revenge. It was a chance for me, for whatever reason, to try and think about punching a stranger. Now, I used this gif, I used this gif a while ago, I still like it. <laughs> you know, I was confronted in that moment. I was confronted in that moment and threatened and I fought back. That was the first thing I thought about. The only catch was, was lying on that ground, that guy I shoved was ready to take me back. He was ready to hit me back with arms and legs. And he was being held back by this group of people. The second guy that, was, that went in, you know, the, the Robins of the Batman, essentially, was ready to go. He was, he was amping. He was ready to go. And I remember the girls who were around, you know, trying to hold them back and saying, he is not worth your time. This is not worth the situation. And so I'm running between all these things in my head. I'm running between the adrenaline rush of wanting to, wanting to hit this guy. I'm running between the logical conclusion, this is not a good idea. Why are you thinking this is a good idea? And running in between these two things and kind of not really sure what is going on. Um, but then, <laughs> and then, I'm gone. I had a moment to leave, I found the moment, and the mind just went. And so I'm walking away, not turning around. The adrenaline wanted to turn around and go back, but I walked away with all this steaming internal stuff going on. And here's the thing for me. That moment, that 
experience of revenge and taking back, that didn't just come from anything. I come back to that. So it didn't come back from anything. It came from particular life stories, particular experiences that get me to that particular point. So, so as a as a, as a as a youngster, I could exude that quiet Asian stereotype, but I was a little ragey. Especially because I didn't felt, feel like I belonged. And I was told so. At a young age, I was bullied for various things, like a side, like a lyricism, like a social skill. And I wanted to belong. And so there's these things that happened in, in school. Stealing of items, stealing of trading cards was a thing when I was you know, 9, 10, 11, 12. It was being called interesting names behind my back on the way home from school. It was, what was it? it was also, you know, instances in basketball where I get hit with an error in basketball, sort of intentionally, sort of not, but there was something going on there. And in that moment, I noticed. And short end, I wanted to let the other person know I noticed. Even though it probably wasn't the right thing to do, this adrenaline rush of irrational confidence was somehow addictive to feel like I had a place. And that happened in the church as well. I remember leading a youth camp and one of the leaders tried to prank me essentially by saying that he misplaced my bag on this hour trip uh, north. And I remember tackling him in front of the kids, having some very interesting obscene words, not a good look. <laughs> then, at a mission trip, I remember uh, a moment where we're living with a bunch of people um, overseas and we're in, these little, we're in these flats as such. I remember sparking this random argument about rubbish and something in the kitchen or something. But it was just... I remember it being hateful. I remember it almost being suspended. And that's awkward. That was a very awkward time. But as I th sought out this faith in Christ that I had as a teenager, I couldn't ignore the call that, about anger and about how we deal and respond with anger. And, and I came the scriptures like that of Ephesians. In chapter 4, and I'll read it in this case. Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word a gift. Verses like that messages I heard as a youngster reminded me that although it said that anger wasn't inherently bad, there's a way in which you deal with that to reconcile, to think of the other person. And so for me, in that situation I wanted to follow God, I wanted to be closer to Him and so I thought based on all that I heard, the right thing to do was to correct my reactions here for the better reason and a bit of discipline in hopes that you know that one would lead to another and that would change I felt the guilt of what my words could mean in terms of revenge probably guilty about that and that meant yes that meant having to rethink the way I encourage using every word 
as a gift and they'd always have me with these messages talking about you know removing anger by praying and reading the scriptures and doing all these disciplines and so I did those things and this obligation to move my reactions yet the anger didn't disappear and that maybe was naive of me to think that anger would disappear but it didn't and so what happened was I carried on this external performance this encouragement giving this gift, yet anything I felt of frustration, of rage, the outputs of anger, that turned negative. That was oppressed. And that became a problem. See, behind all of this is expectation. I've believed since I was a youngster that being who I am isn't good enough. That to believe that I could be accepted and loved was to perform a certain way, it was to not make a mistake. And when moments of failure came on board, the instinct reminded me that I was never going to get there. And so I hear these, these rhetorics, rhetoric of almost like white knuckling my anger away, you know, like feeling it and not doing anything about it and just kind of swallowing it. it was a good thing because that meant that I was at peace with God, because that meant. It was almost like I saw God as this African-American head coach. I don't know why, but I saw him as an African-American head coach with sunglasses on. Also don't know why. I just imagined some gridiron movie where he's yelling and this militant person. And I would see that he would be commanding these things. Yes, it was out of inspiration, but it felt like something I had to meet to be accepted in the same way I talked about the story. That was a trouble when... I couldn't go externally, I couldn't really go to God, and I kept swallowing my pain, and I kept swallowing and swallowing and suppressing and suppressing until, boom, harm happened. I remember in my most oppressive moments sitting in bed at night and reading the word, not because it was trying to encourage me, but to swallow more pain. I go to books like the book of James. It's great for this stuff, unfortunately. You know, if you read this wrong, you can take this. It's entirely a guilt-tripping, shame-inducing moment. And so I read these scriptures. I, in bed, huddled away, as this form of psychological harm. And then, really, then infrequently, and unfortunately often, that harm turned into words and then into deeds. Unseen and then well seen. That was troubling. See, I had a faith in God, but with all this expectation at work, that led to reactions, that led to this instillment of hate, and this hate at God because I couldn't meet what he said. Here's the thing. I'm thankful that today is not like those days. That something is different now, that there's a different way of thinking and I guess we're all here uh, for me to ask the question of why and to me it feels kind of awkward because what happened from those moments at that breaking point to now required nothing yet strangely required everything of me this contradiction I can't quite explain and so I better damn talk about it now I think I'm missing a prop of all the things that I've watched and I think I'm missing a prop I'll find that shortly but I I've told a few of the guys this analogy of a Chinese finger trap. You're going to, to be with me. I, have, I thought I'd brought it, but I didn't. No, this, I had this handcuff you hold between two fingers. It's made of bamboo. And I was given this finger trap by my psychologist. Um, I began a journey with him five plus years ago, I believe. 
and he gave me this finger trap and instinctually, man, I'm annoyed, I'm going to go pop, that's okay. Um, initially, when you're in this bind between two fingers, your instinctual reaction is to pull it apart, to snap the, the, the what was it, the finger trap apart by sheer power, but the only problem is the way it's designed is in such a way that actually you're creating more resistance, you're, cre you're, you're echoing the resistance, the power you're using is turning against you and it's holding these fingers tight. What it meant to me and what it was telling me was that actually all this rhetoric of pragmatism, all this rhetoric of change and discipline was doing my head in. And a perfectionist mindset pulling towards outcomes doesn't induce more harm. It induced all this expectation that flew out this way and holy heck, it all went wrong. And so what he was telling me was, actually, how do you get your fingers out of a finger trap? Is to slowly release them. To slowly, without tension, pull the fingers apart and you can pull your, your finger out of the finger trap. If it's not so good one, if it's a good one, it takes a bit more effort. It takes a bit more, not effort, but a bit more time. And what he, that illustrated to me was that if I committed to acknowledging the pain that was at work, if I was committing to see a particular story of reconciling, it required me not turning to pragmatism, it required me not turning to perfectionism, to guilt, as a way of moving forward. To me, hearing this was a kind of insane. The idea that you could do seemed kind of ridiculous. I'm hoping that's just like, you're good, okay. And essentially the approach was to follow a line that I read this book from Sormers of the Soul by a, by a psychologist named James Hollis. That if we can just acknowledge anger, track its origin, see its effect in our imaginal self, then at last we may break free of the limits that our past holds. Now, here's the catch. It doesn't just require nothing. I didn't realise it at the time, so I'll bring these three things up and I've got props. So there's, there's three things that I'll learn along the way. Now, I wouldn't call them pragmatic points, but they sort of changed the game a bit for me. So one was curiosity. One was time. Must be time over here. Time over here. And there's also listening. Now, curiosity. <coughs> like having this blank photo frame here. The goal was to be interested in the expectations, the why, the what, the, all the questions that came with it. And to not go straight to saying it's a bad thing that exists, but shaping that photo frame, making that colourful, and seeing all the little bits that come with it. Behind me is listening. That I had to learn how to listen without bias, without correction, and without the sense that I was doing something wrong by even voicing it out. And that unfortunately meant I had to get some new ears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had to get some new ears. Now, why I'm la we're laughing at this is we did this non-violent <laughs> communication series as, as a cell here at Jefferson, and there's this guy that we listened to. I couldn't get a giraffe, unfortunately, but like, I had to get new ears on. Now, what I mean by that is my ears I had weren't working. I just weren't very clear. I want to take this off. Um, they weren't <laughs> <laughs> you get the drift. But they weren't, they weren't working very well and I had to gain new ones. And how I gain new ones 
is being listened to. Is being listened to and accepted for the stories that I heard. And that meant listen to, having a professional listen to me. So that I knew how to listen to myself. Thirdly, there's this element of time. There's, an, there's this element that we can't make this a quick fix. It can't be this quick fix that you can solve overnight. And in actual fact, even though we have this baggage that comes up, you have this droplet effect of, well, how is it taking so long? To clear, maybe what it requires is this consistent approach to be able to make listening and curiosity happen, to let it have its fullness. And I want to do that before I get annoyed by drip dropping for the rest of the talk. Um, but maybe time needs to be part of this conversation and patience to allow this to allow the full blossoming of curiosity and listening. Now, here's the thing: I heard all this. I thought it was insane. I just thought it was. You can't. It doesn't work in a culture that says change only happens through desperation, only happens with effort. This doesn't make any sense. I talk to friends and they're like, I don't know, this seems bizarre. But here's the thing. What if peace came about by doing the exact opposite of my story? The exact opposite of my life experience and what society and change had told me? That left me in a state of expectation, a state of guilt, a state of shame, and all the anger that came about through all that. Maybe peace meant doing something different. So I, in my state, begrudgingly, went along with it. And here's the thing. Those first few months kind of sucked, because what had happened, it felt like I was just laying out, laying out story after story, after story, after story, I can do this with me. Um, I think laying out all these stories on the floor. That's what it felt like. And all the little bits of myself I didn't dare touch. I just suppressed it. I just generically suppressed it and thought they were all the same thing. They weren't all the same thing. I had to see every single story. I would find these moments where I'd pick up these random parts of myself, a lot of drift at sea. And put them all in the same room, and it's like, oh, crap. Why have I done this? What is this emotion? What is this panic? I thought I was committing to getting better. This feels like getting worse. Mm -hmm. And so days and weeks and months or waves and swimming and getting swamped and snowed under, like a surfer who's new to the trade and just, you know, gets into that loop under the, under the current, right? That's what I felt. And then it popped. Something changed. I remember one session where I'd normally go down this line of self-harm and self-hate and then I was about to go into the step and then nothing happened. And I kind of looked at him going, hang on, this is different. Why is this different? Why is this foreign? What is going on here? And then realising it was changed and I'm going, hang on, I didn't do anything for this. Nothing on me felt like I did anything. What is happening? And the psychologist turned, smirked, and smiled, and that was the way she wrote. More and more this happened a bit more frequently. Really, than frequently, than often. And as I picked up the pieces of myself, picked up the reasons of understanding the expectation, I understood that actually, maybe I need to think about this the other way around. Because what had happened was I saw moments of anger not existing. 
moments I would turn to revenge, moments I would turn to redemption, moments I would turn in for the kill. And it stopped. And I wondered why. And this epiphany happened, and I'm like, okay, it's crazy. Then, at that point, at some point, I looked at God. I looked at this vision, this African-American sunglass vision of God, <laughs> and saw something different. Because I kept walking this journey back of this journey I had, turning the pages of my expectations, and realized I could, that that was going to happen with God as well. And just putting that on the table was another story, another story, another story. Mm-hmm. And as I saw hindsight, as I saw different prayers and support networks along the way, these flowers blooming, I could see a different image of God, a different image of expectation of a God who made peace in the world through his birth, through his son's birth, his death, his rising from the death. These paradox, this felt like this paradox, see, this idea that God is authoritarian but also gentle. He is certain in many things, yet some things he's completely mysterious about. And all these little tensions that come through that I could resonate with because I knew a story myself with complexity. And maybe that was what I could enter to in God. And in many ways, when I think about Advent coming up in a couple of next week, and I think that's something we'll be pressing into as a community, and I'm quite excited about that. See, we, I think about his peace running through all these different moments and walking through all these different bits of the story from completely broken to seeing something different and can't help but think back of Shalom. This idea that we brought about back in the Adventist series of peace and wholeness with self, with God, with community, with creation. And I couldn't help but think what a gift that I've been given without doing anything, let me, let me add, but a gift that I've been given of this wholeness that I didn't realise until I saw it. Let me turn back to Ephesians, well Ephesians 5, I read the end of Ephesians 4, I want to turn to that passage again through Ephesians 5. Watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us but to give everything of himself to us. Now I love that last verse, but love like Maybe that's what reconciliation means and forgiveness. I mean, as we watch, just watch God, not commit to applying first and foremost, but just watching who He is, opening our wounds, our expectations up to God, and we get this bridge to shalom. Then maybe, just maybe, we know, we could possibly know how to imitate God, not. Because he's given that to us. We see that. And maybe that's what reconciliation is out there. Outside these walls. To see the wounds in other people. Only after we know what he could restore. Inside 
each one of us, where mercy's at the forefront rather than sacrifice at the forefront. So in closing, I want to read a poem. A poem by a man named William Blake. He wrote this in 1794. As I was researching and looking through things with this poem, I couldn't not stop thinking about it. I think it resonates well with tonight's talk and it's closing. I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe, I told it not, my wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears, and I sunned it with smiles and with most deceitful wiles. And it grew both day and night till it bore an apple bright, and my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine. And into my garden stole when the night had veiled the pole in the morning, Glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. This poem tells of how voicing anger puts it away. But suppressing anger leads to its growth. To me, suppressing anger led to this unmet expectation that fueled the reaction. But even though initially I turned to this thing first and thought you could go that way, it destroyed me. And to make peace with all this, I actually had to turn that arrow as I have done the other way. To make peace through the three postures I had behind me. Curiosity, time and listening. Only through those postures could I even get the sense of this gift of shalom that Christ gives each and every one of us. And that only by experiencing shalom in this way can I start can I start, or maybe even, dare I say, we start, to picture God's vision of peacemaking in the world. And what's weird and strange and wonderful and bizarre to me is it kind of starts in here. It kind of starts in me. It kind of starts in letting my expectations of God, of self, and everything else be set with and reconciled. Now, that is me. Wow. Okay. Um, well, 30 minutes took. That is me. So...